I'm Brad. And I'm Alyssa. And we're Strange for History, a podcast where we talk about, you guessed it, strange history. Today's episode is a bit of a special one, and we're going to cover the life and times of a man named Theodore Roosevelt, the 26th President of the United States. Teddy had a very interesting life and numerous adventures, and it was kind of hard to get all of this cut down to something manageable. But we hope you enjoy this episode as we jump into the super random life of this greatest of men. Episode 45, Musevelt. On October 27th of 1858, near what is today East 20th Street in Manhattan, New York, a woman named Martha Stewart Bullock would birth her second child. This bouncing baby boy would take his father's name and be dubbed Theodore Roosevelt Jr. This young child, while horribly intelligent, was also as mischievous as a raccoon and as energetic as a cat wired up on Monster Max. He was also of very poor health. As a youth, the self-proclaimed, the self, the self-titled Bull Moose would suffer a range of sicknesses, but most notable was his asthma which would present in the form of nighttime coughing attacks so bad that they were often described as being as though he was being smothered to death. Nevertheless, the boy persisted. At the age of seven, he and his family would encounter a dead seal in a local market, which Roosevelt would quickly take possession of in order to start the Roosevelt Museum of Natural History with a handful of his young cousins. What is it with young boys doing things like that because i don't know if you remember in the houdini episode him and his like cousins or brothers just like started a freak show (laughs) what else do you do in the 1850s i suppose he would teach himself taxidermy and would go on to fill his museum with all matter of creatures that he caught or killed and by age nine would even write his own small paper on the properties and characteristics of several bugs that he had collected over the past few years. I'm making a face. You can't see it, but I'm making a face. In 1869, the Roosevelt family would hike the Alps, and an 11-year-old Teddy realized that he could easily keep up with his father, and noted during the hike that he experienced little to no asthma or breathing trouble, leading him to believe its potential cure was physical exercise. In lieu of standard education, the Roosevelts would teach their children at home, leading to Teddy having a rough knowledge of certain subjects. He had a good grasp of German and French, as well as sciences, both natural and social, but he struggled horribly with mathematics and all other languages. Despite all of that, he did manage to get into Harvard. While there, his childhood education struggles continued, but he showed huge excel in fields of his interest. He read any book he could find with almost a photographic memory and would compete in rowing and boxing matches in his free time, which, despite being a full-time college student with hobbies and a job, he still managed to find the time to write and publish his own book. Uh, While he was at Harvard, he actually met someone pretty important, uh, Alice Hathaway Lee. Alice and Teddy had met while she was 17 and he was a 19-year-old Harvard college student, her cousin, Richard Saltonstall, was also a Harvard student, so that was sort of how they got introduced. Uh, so a little bit more about Alice. She was born in Chestnut Hill, Massachusetts on July 29, 1861. Um, 
her father was a wealthy banker, so she, you know, came from a good family. She had this cute little nickname, Sunshine, because she was so cheerful. She was tall and athletic with blue eyes and blonde hair. She loved playing the piano, tennis. She was great at archery, and apparently she was a very skilled boater. Interesting. Yes. Um, when they met, Teddy was pretty one-track-minded in his wooing of Alice. Um, he got super close with her family, and when other competitors would come around, he was pretty upset about it, sort of in despair. Um, he proposed one time, and then she rejected it. So in January 1880, he proposed again, uh, and she actually said yes. They got married that year uh, on his 22nd birthday. Scorpio King. Yeah, our Scorpio King in Brookline's First Parish Unitarian Church. They spent their honeymoon at the Tranquility, which was the Roosevelt's home in Oyster Bay, and then immediately moved in with his family in New York City. Interesting. Yeah. Alice actually got really close with his mom um, and some of his siblings. She fit right at home. Now, shortly after all of this would transpire, Teddy's father would pass away. And he would then inherit a large sum of money. I couldn't lock down exactly how much it was. One source said it was $35,000. One source said it was well over a million dollars. Either way, though, at this point in history, it was so much money, Teddy would never need to work again. And the family could live comfortably without any sort of additional income. At this same point in time, he decided that Harvard gave him very little to no interest whatsoever. And he just left Harvard to attend Columbia Law School, which he very quickly got bored of that as well. And instead of attending classes, opted to write a book about the War of 1812. <laughs> this is when his interest in politics appeared. And upon running for, upon running for office and winning, he would leave the university saying that he intended to be a member of the quote governing class unquote he really said this cool shit ain't for me yeah pretty much <laughs> oh sorry you're fine in 1881 before they sort of settled down a little bit more into their own space alice and teddy actually went on a trip through europe just for five months straight they just traveled europe probably with that money that he just fucking inherited probably and he actually um around that same time bought land near tranquility so that he could start building a home for the family that he and alice planned to have adorable in 1882 his book entitled the naval war of 1812 would be completed and published and would be almost immediately praised for its accuracy depth and research and it is still something that is taught and studied today throughout the study of war. And it's actually one of the many books that are assigned to you to read upon entering into West Point University. I did learn that. I feel like that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, the next year in 1883, Alice got pregnant. Um, that was, again, sort of a good push towards building that large home. It was going to be called Lee Home. Later that year, as Alice's pregnancy progressed, she actually moved back in with Teddy's family because they had been elsewhere for a little bit. And that's when his mother became sick as well. So Alice's mother actually had to come help Alice while they were staying with Teddy's family. 
On February 12, 1884, Alice gave birth to their daughter, Alice Lee Roosevelt. Teddy was in Albany at the time, and he actually received a telegram that he had a healthy little baby girl. But just a day later, he received another telegram that his wife wasn't doing so well. He traveled through god-awful weather just to be next to her while she was sick. And he got there hours before she passed away. So he only spent a brief period of time with her um, before she died. She actually had Bright's disease, which is uh, nephritis of the kidney that they couldn't really detect at the time. Alice died on February 14th, 1884, 11 hours after Teddy's mother died from typhoid fever. So he was there for Alice, but not for his mother. They held a double funeral and Alice is now buried in the Greenwood Cemetery. On that day in particular, Teddy had written in his journal a very large X and underneath the quote, the light has gone out of my life. It's such a small quote, but that is such a powerful phrase. Makes you want to cry. I'm tearing up. I can cry right now. <laughs> you could, yeah. I could. I mean, he lost. He was pretty. He was a pretty family man. That's oh, what yeah. he wanted. He wanted a large family. So I could not. I could not imagine losing not only my wife but my mother in the, in the same, same day. Yeah. Yeah. Later in 1884, he would attend the GOP summit in Chicago where he would urge other members to vote in John Lynch, an African-American, as the setting chair of the GOP, all in an attempt to outmaneuver his political rival, James Blaine. Unfortunately, Blaine would win the state seat, but with a taste of politics on his tongue, Teddy had his eyes on a much bigger fish. He would lose a lot of support from his followers after a quote in an article that he stated he would give support to any decent Democrat. He later urged that this was just a joke and was not meant for publication, although his fans did not agree. Teddy would purchase a cattle ranch and retire from politics to move to North Dakota. While living in the Dakota Territory, Teddy, and he actually completely hated that name, but we think it's so fun to refer to him it's as so cute. Teddy, would go on to write and publish three more books, helped to start a local stock club, and even became a police officer in Billings County, North Dakota. As a deputy, the crown jewel of his career would be the arrest of a gang of boat thieves. Although his time in Dakota would be rather short-lived. The winter of 1886 was brutally cold and would lead to the deaths of the entire cattle herd. Fearing the damaging things that would be said about him behind his back, Teddy just turned tail and ran back to New York, leaving his ranching and law enforcement days behind him. In December, before returning home, and with much pushback from his siblings, Teddy would, marrow, Teddy would marry a childhood friend named Edith Kermit Caro. There was no pushback from his siblings. That's not what I read. Edith was besties with his sister. No, I read that his siblings were really upset that he remarried so quickly. Oh, yeah, quickly, I guess. I was yeah. going to say. Yeah, they were very upset that he went from the dead love of his life, Alice, to Edith in less than two years. Well, we'll talk about Edith, and you'll see why. He moved on so fast. So you say you don't have enough time to study German? Well, the Learn German Through Music podcast can help with that. Each 20 to 30 minute lesson teaches you 30 words. And because we're on Spotify, you can listen on the go. Whether you are at home, driving to work, or out for a run, 
Learn German through music makes it fun and easy to learn vocabulary. Each lesson features a new song in a different genre, from indie to rap, from punk to reggae. Learn German through music has something for everyone, so don't miss it. Only available on Spotify. Edith Kermit Caro was born on August 6, 1861 in Connecticut to Gertrude Elizabeth Tyler and Charles Caro. Her father was actually pretty absent throughout her life. He was incredibly abusive and an alcoholic as well, who actually died in 1883. Edith and her younger sister Emily struggled a lot with this, and they found a lot of peace both in each other uh, in books, and Edith found a lot of personal peace in her best friend, Corinne Roosevelt. They actually grew up in the same neighborhood, so they were fairly close to the family. Teddy and Edith were actually really close as teenagers. They were kind of dating, and there's a rumor that Teddy proposed marriage, but no one knows for certain. He called her the most cultivated, best-read girl I know, and they were in a relationship right before he went to Harvard, but then they had a little bit of a fight, so they just kind of broke up. That's, of course, when Teddy had fallen in love with Alice and gotten married, and Edith was actually determined to be friends with both of them. She was even at the wedding. Interesting. She was being cordial. Definitely. Like Brad mentioned, they reconnected and they got married on December 6th, 1886 in London. They lived at Sagamore Hill, which was the new name for the house that Teddy was building for Alice. Gotcha. So he changed the name after she had died. They moved around quite a bit, which we'll get there. And they eventually did have their own children. In 1887, they had Theodore because we're just going to name kids. After, After ourselves. It gets worse. Uh, Kermit in 1889. Oh, the frog? Well, her middle name was Kermit. The frog? Yes. Okay. Uh, 1891, they had Ethel. 1894, Archibald. 1897, their youngest, Quinn. She was very focused on her children and family, though she did visit North Dakota in 1890. Oh, Whenever they moved, like we'll talk about in a second, she was kind of the one in charge of it, and she did not like moving. It annoyed her greatly. So after returning to New York, Teddy would write another book, would run for the mayor of New York City, lose, and be appointed to the Civil Service Commission at the request of his friend, Henry Lodge. After the election of Grover Cleveland, Teddy was fearful that he would lose his job as he was a loud supporter of President Harrison, but Cleveland opted to keep him in his position. In 1894, he would be asked again to run for mayor of New York, but Teddy was insistent that his wife would not allow him. She was too used to the social circles in Washington, D.C., and in a fit of despair over the lost flame that could rekindle his political career, he retreated back to the wilderness of the Dakota Territory. Could you imagine just running away from all of your problems in North Dakota? I mean, honestly, she was kind of fine with it because, like you said, she was in her little social circles. Right. She was doing a lot, both with the kids and just, like, socially. And, like I said, when they moved, she was the one in charge of all of that. Right. They got how many kids? Like, six? Five? Six with Alice. Yeah, six. They have six kids. So it's this woman moving all six of these fucking children with this man who's just frivolously running for things. Same. (laughs) Teddy's true return to politics was not glamorous. 
The new New York City mayor would appoint him to the board of New York City Police Commissioners. This appointment would go on to change the face of New York law enforcement even into a modern standard. Teddy instituted mandatory physical fitness exams, weapon inspections, installed telephones inside all police stations to increase response times, had mandatory mental acuity testing, and so much more that are still being required under his rules today. You mean to tell me that Teddy Roosevelt really said police reform? Yes, he did. (laughs) Uh, Teddy Roosevelt was also the man who decided that we should not be hiring police officers based on their political or religious affiliations and should hire the people that were best suited for the job. I mean, makes sense to me. Absolutely. He would even go out of his way to walk the patrol routes of officers who caused problems with the commission to ensure that they were on duty and even opted to do these at times they would not expect, like super duper early in the morning. He'd just be out there walking with these guys. He sounds like the world's worst manager. He really does. Like he's not the manager that I want to have. Absolutely. I mean, I appreciate the effort. You know, he was doing good. You want police officers to be doing their job, of course, but... I see now why the officers resented him. Oh, yes. They they <laughs> hated him. They hated him so, so much that by the time it came time for him to leave this office, he was like, no, nah, we don't need other commissioners. This should be a one-man job in charge of all the police because there are too many commissioners that are taking my power away. And he's actually the guy who decided that there should only be one police commissioner for New York. But the citizens liked him. And the respect for the the respect from the people just continued to grow and grow and grow. Two years later, during the 1896 presidential run, Teddy Roosevelt backed a man by the name of Thomas Reed, who would lose to William McKinley. A good friend put a bug in McKinley's ear, however, and Henry Lodge, now somehow inside of William McKinley's cabinet, spoke very highly of Mr. Roosevelt to President Kennedy, who was totally on board with making this random man that he did not know the Secretary of the Navy. Well, the Assistant Secretary. Anyway, remember the book that he wrote about naval powers in 1812? Yeah. Okay, fantastic, because Teddy did not forget that book and almost immediately began building massive battleships to increase the naval power of the United States because he noted that there was a serious lack of naval power specifically in the Pacific and Caribbean powers of the U.S. He just kind of forced this ideology onto McKinley, just walked into the office and was like, hey, this is what we're going to do, and we're going to do it because I said so. And he even went on to beg McKinley to evict Spain from Cuba. I mean... He hated the Spanish. I mean, (laughs) at the time... Yeah, he actually viewed Spain as the number one threat to the U.S. overall. I mean, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. In February of 1898, have you noticed that everything important in this man's life happens in February? I would say important and tragic. Yeah. But there would be a massive explosion that would rock Havana, Cuba. Tragic. Yeah. As the USS Maine exploded in the water, killing hundreds. Roosevelt almost immediately blamed Spain for this event and went around the back of the president to deploy ships to the area. Eventually, the president broke down and war would be declared, sparking the Spanish-American War. Edith did see him off when he went to, like, fully fight in the Spanish-American War. She went to Florida and she was like, see ya. And then, um, I don't think, I don't know if you mentioned this or not, when they come back to Montauk, New York. I believe so. Okay, well, they're in quarantine, right? She broke quarantine to see him. 
what a what a good woman. She she was like, no, I'm I'm pulling up, and she actually assisted in the veterans hospital at the time. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, Teddy would resign from his position as Assistant Secretary of the Navy and join up with a man named Colonel Leonard Wood to create the first volunteer cavalry division. He was desperate to see combat and wanted this specific adventure. His wife and friends begged him to stay home, but she had previously learned the lesson of trying to control her husband when he disappeared to the Dakotas, and Teddy now did what Teddy wanted to do. He and Wood would take volunteers from all backgrounds and states, and thus the Rough Riders would officially be formed. This cavalry group consisted of everything from, from professional athletes to cowboys to Ivy Leaguers to sheriffs and anyone and everyone in between, and would see combat often through the course of the war. Following a major victory at Kettle Hill on July 1st, Colonel Roosevelt would simply quit the army and attempt to return home. I'm sorry, are you telling me he tried to go AWOL? No, he didn't try. He he did? Yeah. He went AWOL? Yeah. He, and this man still became president? He and all the other officers were like, we don't want to do this anymore. And just didn't. All right. Good for him. He returned home and got his name dropped into the governorship of New York. And as governor, he would start to develop the ideology that would run throughout his presidency. But times were changing, and he was not ready yet for that big oval office. He did ask for a cabinet position in 1900, but was denied the chair for the Secretary of War, which sent him right back to New York. And the reason that he did not get this office was because of the shit that he pulled during going his, AWOL. Yeah, during the Spanish-American War. Well, not only going AWOL, but going around the back of the president to start a war anyway. Right. Edith really enjoyed being the first lady of New York. I'll, I'll tell you that. She modernized the governor's mansion. She joined a women's club. She would help Teddy with his correspondence. She was, if you sent him mail, he was the, she was the one who answered it. She did all of that. Uh, she kept him sort of put together. Um, but then for a little bit, she took a trip to Cuba, which is so funny. Yeah. <laughs> she was like, I'm going to go on a trip to Cuba with my sister, Emily. And, um, she had to come back to the U.S. because I'm sure of what you're about to mention. And she was very annoyed that she had to, like, <laughs> leave Cuba and come back because her husband, again, frivolously did a does, political position. Just does what he wants to do. Henry Lodge, our good friend from earlier, makes a reappearance. And he urged Roosevelt to take the office of vice president for William McKinley. But he refused, stating the position did not have enough power for him. This would cause a political rival to start spreading rumors that he would, in fact, be running for the office, even though he was literally barred from it because, you know, war crimes. A random political mover and shaker, and there is some debate as to who it was that did this, put his name on the ballot as a way to get rid of him. Hmm. And... Once the ballots came through, Roosevelt had actually won the office of vice president unanimously once it was put to a vote. He would become the official vice president then to William McKinley. And on September 6th, 1901, President McKinley would be shot by an assassin. While he did not pass away immediately, Roosevelt was informed of the incident, although he was on vacation out west at the time. I bet he was. A few short days later, McKinley would pass away, and Roosevelt would be informed that he would be sweared in as the 26th president. And almost immediately out of the gate, he wanted to strengthen his position for a 1904 presidential run. 
His work was successful, and he did, in fact, win a second term. Edith liked being the first lady of the United States, too. Uh, she actually hosted a lot of uh, things. She would have the wives of the cabinet officers over for events. She scheduled musicals. She even remodeled the entire White House. She hired um, Isabel Hagner, who was a social secretary who assisted in sort of the events, day-to-day life. She kind of did everything. Edith was the first first lady to hire a full-time salaried social secretary. Interesting. They really said creating jobs. Oh, God. Um, to remodel the White House, she worked with a, pre- a prestigious architectural firm, McKim, Mead, and White. They separated the living quarters from the offices and made them bigger. She's the one who created the Oval Office. Interesting. I didn't know that. She modernized all of the public rooms. She redid all of the landscaping, redecorated all of the interior. She's the one who started the White House China Collection. She actually had those cabinets built and started the collection. And she also is the person who started the First Lady's Portrait Gallery, which if you have the time to go through all, I think, 60 of the portraits of First Ladies, boy, oh boy, is it a trip. Everyone is like pretty normal until you get to Edith and she's like sitting on a couch and she's got feathers and she's got a whole vibe and Jackie Kennedy is standing in front of like a fireplace and there was someone else's wife, I don't remember who it was, who has like a dog next to her. She's the only one with a dog in that portrait, by the way. So good on her, but highly recommend going through the First Lady's Portrait Gallery. Did you have more? I can talk a little bit more, yeah, if you're going to go into like more things that he did. Edith, yeah, Edith did a little bit more at the time. Let's hear about Edith. She was a pretty pri- private person, despite the fact that she put on all these events. You know how everybody's like, we have reporters now, they had reporters back then, of course, and they're sort of, we want to be involved in the president's lives. Um, she kept all of the reporters away. She kept her family's lives separate and secret. She wanted them to have a private life. She enjoyed her alone time, and in fact, every single morning, she would spend an hour alone with Teddy so that they could talk over the state of affairs. She would offer him advice. He had a terrible judge of character, and she did not, according to her. Um, And so she did a lot. She was a diplomatic go-between once for Teddy and Sir Cecil Spring Rice and the U.S. ambassador to England, uh, Whitelaw Reed. She was heavily involved in a lot of the political aspects of the presidency she wasn't just the first lady she was she was the she was the first lady (laughs) (laughs) what's that about a cabin oh she bought a cabin after he died interesting yeah or no not after he died sorry i can't read she bought a cabin in called pine knot in rural virginia so that he would have somewhere else to go much closer than dakota Now, a longtime friend named Archibald Butt would assist the president in the last few years of his second term. He would go on to pass on the Titanic when it sank, and he would never emotionally recover from the death of one of his friends. Congress began to grow very weary of the massive powerball that Roosevelt created during his second term and became very, very strict on things that they passed. They viewed him as a lame duck after he was refused a after he refused a third term, even though he had promised that he would take it if it were offered to him. So we almost got Teddy for another four years. Was this before the term limit? 
I believe yes, so. Because wasn't it FDR? I think so. Because FDR, FDR, FDR was in there for like four terms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He just didn't leave. Those Dan Roosevelt's. After leaving office in 1909, Theodore would begin a series of safaris and travels around the world to presume or to pursue his one true dream. Nature. Edith was annoyed by this. I believe she would be. She wanted to retire. That was part of the reason why she bought that cabin in Virginia. She was so excited when his presidency ended. She was like, ah, we can now live a peaceful private life. And he said, I'm going to go on my safari. So she was like, well, then I'll take Ethel, Archie, and Quentin on a long tour of Europe. And so that's what she did. Fantastic. Theodore's hunting party would consist of celebrity hunters, a zoologist, a naturalist, Quentin. Oh, did he go eventually? Uh, he, he took him. <laughs> he just took Quentin. And a random surgeon that just kind of joined up with the group. I mean, hey, that's not a bad person to have around on an African safari. You it's, know what could happen. Yeah, it's really Look more. at um, yeah. Dr. Livingstone. Uh, Dr. Livingstone. While the team was hunting through Africa, they managed to collectively kill or capture 11,400 different species of animals. I think none of them existed. I mean, I do, like, but they're probably the reason that some are so extinct. Oh, Teddy is the reason we have the knowledge of a lot of the animals that we do. That's fair. They hunted Africa so well. And his journals were so in-depth that we managed to identify animal species because of him that we didn't know about before, which I think is insane. Yeah. Anyway, he would eventually just leave Africa because he got bored and would then go to meet with King George V. And then he would meet Kaiser Wilhelm II and Emperor Franz Joseph of Austria, just dragging his kid along with him. They would meet other major important European leaders as well, and all of this massive trip would end when Roosevelt returned to the United States just in time to become the first president to ride in an airplane. A series of political moves would find Roosevelt running for the office of president again in 1910. Can I just say, what? <laughs> she actually, when he first started to like campaign, she was like, are you fucking kidding me? She wanted that peaceful life. But of course, as it like progressed, she was like, all right, right, right. I'm here for you. Which I'm sure she was a full supporter of until October 14th, 1912, <laughs> when this, this man was shot in the chest during a political rally. The bullet passed through his eyeglasses case, 50 pages worth of notes he had stuffed into his breast pocket and embedded inside of his chest. I'm sorry, how did he fit 50 pages of notes? In a shirt pocket. I do not know. Big pockets, I guess. Maybe he wrote on small paper. Maybe. Nonetheless, all of that actually slowed the bullet enough to where it was non-fatal. And when he noticed he was not coughing up blood, he decided that there was no real damage. And instead of going to the hospital as he should have, he gave a 90-minute political speech to a crowd of onlookers. And even opened that speech by saying, ladies and gentlemen... I don't know whether you fully understand that I have just been shot, but it takes more than that to kill a bull moose. He Incredible. Incredible. Amazing man. He really was like, yeah. You tried to kill me? Hmm. What I find very interesting is that the man who shot him was immediately disarmed by another man standing beside of him, 
The shooter, I believe, was Polish. The man who disarmed him was a German. Law enforcement showed up, and they were fully prepared to kill this man, and Roosevelt was like, no, he didn't kill me. He's done nothing wrong. And just let the man live. I'm sorry, can you imagine getting off free of any charges of attempted assassination of a former and now on the campaign trail U.S. president? Just because the man didn't want you to be abused by law enforcement. He's like, I know what these police officers will do. He's fine, boys. Now, what makes this even more interesting is that his political opponents would agree to pause their campaigning for the presidency until Roosevelt could rejoin them. It was supposed to be several, several months, but then two weeks later, he was out campaigning again. Perfectly fine. I feel Edith's annoyance from the grave. (laughs) (laughs) She's just like, are you kidding? Because she, you know, she obviously cared for him, you know, after. Right. He was shot. Speaking of Edith, let's, let's catch up with her family in these last year or so. What's going on there? Well, he lost. Right. He lost. He lost. So she was there for him. Um, she even went to Brazil with him for a bit while they he explored the River of Doubt, which I thought was made up, but I guess it's not. Nope. Good to know. Um, in 1918, both Edith and Roosevelt faced a pretty heavy loss, lost their youngest child. And I want to talk about Clinton real quick. He was only four years old when Teddy was elected, um, and he actually befriended some of the other children of the White House, the cabinet members' children. He was besties with Charlie Taft, you know, President Taft's son, um, and Roswell Pickney, which I don't remember what he was, his dad was, but somebody important. And this rambunctious group was known as the White House Gang. They carved a baseball diamond on the White House lawn without permission, defaced official presidential portraits with spitballs, threw snowballs at Secret Service men on the roof, and his most memorable little prank was he snuck his pony Algonquin into the White House elevator so that he could cheer up his brother Archie when he was sick. That is adorable. (laughs) Uh, Quentin's nickname bestowed upon him by his father, who hated nicknames apparently, was Quinnikins, but his mother just called him a fine, bad little boy. Quentin was actually a pretty excellent student, and he got into Harvard in 1915, but just like his dad, he dropped out and joined the war. He specifically joined the U.S. Army Air Service during World War I, and he became a pursuit pilot in the 95th Aero Squadron First Pursuit Group. Interesting. Quentin was killed in aerial combat over France on Bastille Day, July 14, 1918, He was actually buried by German soldiers when his plane had crashed in Cologne-Cologne. Thank you, France. A few days later, American soldiers actually replaced the cross with their own, and the French had actually enclosed the area so that no one could mess with his body. You can actually, um, I think it was the National Park Service or maybe some other formal government thing actually has a youtube video of a video of american soldiers finding his wreckage and going through it wow yeah i watched that last night um in 1955 quentin was exhumed and reburied with his oldest brother in normandy 
Quentin is the only child of a U.S. president to die in combat. He was awarded a Purple Heart posthumously and granted a degree from Harvard in 1919, which is the year that he would have graduated. Where his plane crashed, there's now a fountain memorial with a lion's head on it. And the text reads, you know, his name, Lieutenant Quentin Roosevelt, and a quote at the bottom from his father. Only those are fit to live who are not afraid to die. Wow. Yes. A year later, on January 5th, 1919, following the death of his son, loss of friends, and another loss in a major presidential election, Roosevelt would begin suffering from breathing problems, just as he did as a child. He was looked at by his family doctor and would say that he was starting to feel better and that he wanted to go to bed. His family butler, James Amos, who also became the first and longest serving African-American FBI special agent, which I found very interesting. Anyway, James Amos would be the last man to see him in the live, and he passed on his final words to the family. Please put out that light, James. President Roosevelt would pass away between 4 a.m. and 4.15 from a detached blood clot at the age of 60. Before you say your beautiful ending, I will say that when he did pass away, Edith spent the rest of her life traveling through Europe, Asia, Africa, and South America. She wrote two books, Cleared for Strange Ports, in 1927 about her travels. She even wrote American Backlogs, the story of Gertrude Tyler and her family in 1928. So she talked about, you know, her family and her mother. But to protect her privacy, she destroyed every single love letter that Teddy had sent her. And, um... During the Great Depression, she briefly campaigned for Herbert Hoover solely to emphasize that Franklin was not her son. When the 19th Amendment passed for that, she very much encouraged Republican women to vote, and she volunteered with the Women's National Republican Club and a Needlework Guild. She passed away on September 30th, 1948, and she was laid to rest next to Teddy at the Young's Memorial Cemetery in Oyster Bay. And I feel like for how amazing this man was in life, all the things he did, his life can be summed up with just a few short words from Vice President Thomas Marshall upon him learning of Roosevelt's death. That quote being, death had to take Roosevelt sleeping, for if he had been awake, there would have been a fight. Today's date is May 12th. So for today in history, we have in 1215, English barons served King John with the ultimatum that eventually led to the creation and signing of the Magna Carta, which don't ask me what that was, but I did take British history in college, and I would like to formally apologize to my professor that I don't remember anything about the Magna Carta. In 1784, ratified copies of the Treaty of Paris, which ended the Revolutionary War, were exchanged between the U.S. and Great Britain in Paris. In 1910, the second NAACP conference was held in New York City. And very recently, in 2022, the first images of the supermassive black hole Sagittarius A, which lies at the heart of the Milky Way, were captured and published by the Event Horizon Telescope Collaboration. Space. And you remember that day. I do remember that day. I was so excited that day. This was a huge day for me. I love space. I don't know if you, our loving listeners, know that, but I am obsessed with space. 
And when I saw the image of that black hole, which honestly just kind of looks like an orange that someone put behind a black piece of construction paper, I was like, oh my God, it's real. <laughs> I think I legitimately broke down and cried. See, I see the word supermassive black hole and I think of the song by Muse, which is famously used in, in a Twilight. baseball scene in, in Twilight. Twilight. See, I don't know if you viewers know this, but... <laughs> no, we, we, they do know that because we mention it at least once a season. Oh, we have to. We I mean, I mentioned I, any space thing I can find for today in history. I'm like, oh, Brad. Yes. Here's space. Go. Right. Love space. Anyway, May 12th, today in history. Ooh. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Strange for History. We hope you enjoyed this episode and learned all that you can about the bull moose himself, Teddy Roosevelt. And his wives, because women are important too, damn it. And his son, Quinnikins. And, yeah, and Quinnikins. What an adorable name. As always, you can follow us on Good Pods, Amazon, Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or really wherever your ears are listening. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Strange the Number Four History for all the latest updates, extra info, shoutouts, and collab opportunities. If you're listening to this, we're still looking for uh, other podcasts to send us their trailer. Um, you can DM us on Twitter. You can email us at strangehistorypodcast13 at gmail.com. I think is what it is. Yep. Because um, instead of ad space, we're doing podcast ads right. essentially. There's still ad space. It's yeah. just someone else. Just, we're giving back. Yeah. And of course, always enjoy the strange, weird things that make us us. us.